Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. So before I introduce my guest, I want to talk about some of the shows I've been watching this week. I'm about halfway into the Audrey Hepburn documentary on Netflix, which is interesting, I guess. Not loving it, but um, I don't really know what to say about it. We'll see. I'll see when I finish it. Um, I did finish the doc series that I mentioned a few weeks ago, Top Class, The Life and Times of Sierra Trailblazers, which is the Sierra Canyon Trailblazers, which is the high school basketball team that has Bronny and Zaire Wade on it. Um, I really enjoyed that series. It's only six episodes. And I won't kind of spoil what happens, but um, let's just say that they run up against the the actual ticking clock of COVID. So I think that's worth a, a watch. That's on imdb.com, I guess. I don't know. We watched it. You can add the app to your Roku. That's how we watched it. Did watch the college admission scandal, Varsity Blues, on Netflix. And I liked it, actually. I did not enjoy it at the beginning. I thought the hybrid kind of weaving in the scripted scenes with Matthew Modine and some other actors it was a little jarring, um, but then I got used to it and I got into it and I actually liked it. And I'm very interested in that story. So I would say if you have an interest in that story, this is the whole Lori Laughlin, Felicity Huffman, better known as that because they were involved in it, but it's the whole college admission scandal. I, I recommend it. And I actually think now that I've seen the whole thing, I think Matthew Modine actually did a good job because he's portraying a real life guy who it seemed to be kind of exactly like how he played him. And also they're basing the dialogue on the actual transcripts um, of the wiretapping. So, so that was pretty interesting too. Overall, I would say recommend. And then I did watch two movies to prepare for a podcast that I'm recording this week that I wanted to recommend. Um, one is a, is a documentary that came out a few years ago. It's on Hulu now. It's called Tiny Shoulders Rethinking Barbie. And I really love this movie. Um, it was directed by Andrea Nevins, Andrea Blagard Nevins, who I'm having on the podcast um, very soon. And it's about the history of Barbie, really kind of interwoven with the history of feminism. But what's what the real POV is, is that it goes in through the Mattel toy makers at kind of a pivotal moment a few years ago where they are having to reinvent the Barbie doll. And you get this really cool behind the scenes footage of them sort of in the branding and the production meetings and then the PR meetings and deciding kind of what they're going to do. It's this big, big step for the brand after so many years. And I really loved it. I, I thought it was super interesting and I highly recommend it. I'm really glad I saw it. And lastly, I saw her movie that's coming out. I'll promote it when I have her on as well. But again, Andrea's movie called Hysterical, which is going to be premiering on FX and Hulu April 1st and April 2nd. And it's female comedians, it's about female comedians. And it was so good. I loved it so much. And you'll hear more about that when I interview Andrea. But you must set your DVRs for this wonderful doc. If you love comedy and you love women, you will love Hysterical. And now on to my podcast guest for today, Erica Bryant. She is a showrunner and now author. This is her second time on the podcast. And of course, I was lucky to have her again. I love Erica. The first time she was on a panel with other Black women executives. So we didn't really get to fully go in depth on her career, but we do today. So Erica is a seasoned executive producer. She's worked on shows like Bravo's Real Housewives of Atlanta and Married to Medicine. And now she is show running the third season of Family or Fiance, which premieres late spring, early summer on OWN. And Erica's actually been with that show since season one. 
We also talk about her new book, Doing It Scared, an inspirational guidebook to facing and conquering fear. That's on sale now on Amazon. And if you want an autographed copy, you can go to her website, erica-bryant.com. And I will put both of those links in the show notes. So we talk about the book. We talk about Erica's career, her being a leader, not a boss, making vulnerability okay, and how not every show is a fit for everyone. You have to be able to sleep with yourself at night. But really, the main theme of this whole podcast is going for what you want and doing it scared. I'm excited to welcome back Erica Bryant. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm happy you're here virtually. Um, so you were on a panel with a bunch of other amazing women. I don't know, it's like six or seven months ago now, right? Oh, wow. That was kind of the first time we met in, in quotations. Um, and then you and I had a very nice breakfast I don't even, when was that? I have no concept of time. Was that like September? I think it was back in August or September, I want to say. Yeah. And you were, you had not quite finished the book yet. Well, you had finished the book. You had finished the book and you were right. Like, okay. I was in the editing process. I was in the process of taking a class on how to write a book proposal because I was doing it backwards. And (laughs) you wrote the book first. Yes. (laughs) Well, first of all, and I remember, I think either off or on mic, you did mention that, that you had written a book during the quarantine. So you're one of those annoying people who like got something amazing done, you know, and I'm like, I learned how to make lasagna without a recipe. That's my claim to fame. You, however, are like an incredible shape. You wrote a book, you've been working. So we bow down to you, first of all. Don't bow down to me, honey. Please. I mean, well, anyone, first of all, I just have such respect because, and, and that kind of is the premise of your book. It's something that you wanted to do for so long Um, and you did it. So I feel like that's kind of where we should start doing it scared. Like how long did this, this was a process for you, right? Absolutely. Uh, I have been wanting to write this book. I say for the better part, I say 10 years, but it was actually more like 15 or 20. I always knew in my twenties that I would write a book and I kept saying, Oh, later in life later. And then I got to be in my forties. I'm like, girl, this is later. How much later are we going to go? You know? (laughs) And so, um, during the, um, shutdown or the lockdown, uh, when quarantine happened, um, I was kind of sitting around the house and like everyone else cooking and eating like a mad woman. And, you know, decided one day, it's like, okay, you know what? I want to write this book. We don't know how long this is going to last. No one's working. I don't have FOMO. People aren't out doing cool stuff, taking vacations. I'm not like, oh, I need to be here doing this other thing. So sitting in the house, which I love my alone time. I love kind of just being in my own space in my head. I could I could be in quarantine for like a year and, and a half and be fine. <laughs> same girl, same. I totally said, all fine. I need is a massage and I'm good. <laughs> Put me back in lockdown. Just give me massages and I'm good. Totally fine with this. So it wasn't driving me crazy in that way. But I was like, you know what? Let me just take this time and do something productive. And I've always been a person who journals like since I was a small kid. And uh, during this period, I was like, you know, let me just do a 10 minutes per day. Let me dedicate 10 minutes per day and see what comes out. Um, And I think it was in probably late February, early March is when I started. And literally within 10 weeks, the book was complete. Um, the cool thing was, is that those 10 minutes, of course, on certain days turned into 45 minutes, two hours, an hour and a half, whatever it was, but I just stayed with it. And because I didn't have anything else calling me like to work or whatever, I was very much just entrenched in it. Um, so it was a really, really, you know, awesome experience. And in 10 weeks, yeah, the book was written. And the cool thing too, is that because I'm a TV producer, 
I didn't realize how that would play into writing this book. I actually carded out the book like I carded out an episode of, a te of television. And so I carded each chapter out, what I wanted to highlight, what, you know, things I wanted to make sure I touched upon. And it was really my roadmap, you know, to finishing this book in such a short period of time, I think. My favorite kind of self-help book in quotes is like memoir meets self-help. And you nailed that. So you do a really beautiful job of, of weaving in your own experiences because Let's face it, if you're going to write a book about fear, we need to hear the stories. Like, what did you do? You know, where were you when this happened? So you start with your childhood. You actually, you know, as someone who's just, I love like the juicy, you know, I, I want to know all the stories. I think that what I'm reading between the lines is that you had a pretty tough childhood and you, uh, there was abuse and some trauma um, and, and you just sort of were, were a girl who, who put their head to the grindstone, so to speak, and just rocked out, um, which probably served you very well in your career. But I am curious as someone who's obviously very introspective mm -hmm. and has done work and yourself, you know, through spirituality and, and faith, how do you think that trauma in your childhood affected you? And what were the kinds of things that you went through that you think, you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I actually think probably because of that, you were successful. I don't know if you agree with that. And I'm curious how it shaped you or how you think it shaped you. You know, I think the trauma for me instilled a drive in me to, it showed, you know, I feel like life is about contrast, what you do want and what you don't want. And so I believe that seeing what I saw, you know, and for clarity, I wasn't abused. It was abuse in the home, unfortunately, um, domestic stuff and all that kind of thing. And so for me, it showed me a life that I did not want. Um, and, and I'll say this, you know, I say this in the book as well, is that I would not trade my parents for the world. As nutty as their relationship was, you know, and, and what they were going through, they were young and kind of just doing their thing. And we were kind of there, you know, figuring it out. Um, I feel like, you know, my grandmother was very much impactful in raising me and kind of instilling some of those good qualities. And so I think seeing all that I saw, and there was a lot of my, like, extended family uncles and all you know living in the house with us and kind of all of that stuff that was happening it was very um overwhelming to me as a child you know uh but I I, I have really tough skin and I think it built me to have this you know fearless kind of a thing because if you're dealing with that stuff in your house you're like in the world you're like that ain't that ain't shit <laughs> you, know I mean? you know like I see this every day excuse my language and so uh so yeah I think it shaped me in in the way of knowing what I didn't want to experience and you know just to to know that there must be more out there and so you know me going away to college much later of course was you know me leaping you know in faith you know, that we'll just see, well, I know what home is and that's always going to be there. And if I want to go back to that, I can, you know, that's fine, but let's see what else is out in the world. And that was kind of what propelled me. Were you always self-driven? Like, did any of it come from your parents? Because you seem like you just were on this path, you know, you were really good in school, you went to college, you started in the record business. I mean, you didn't really, didn't seem like you were some confused, troubled, what should I do? Like you always had a path, even though it twist and turned, you were very driven. Did any of that come from your parents or was that all self-inflicted? I think, you know, I think my work ethic came from my father. He's a, you know, 
a strong man and very much been hardworking since I was a little girl. I used to go to the Ace Hardware, well, back then it wasn't Ace Hardware, but to the hardware store with him, always fixing on cars, working every single day, even though they were partying on the weekends, you know, partying means, um, you know, they still worked every day. So my work ethic, I think, came from him. I think as far as my mom, she instilled in me this, she praised me a lot when I was much younger. She left when I was six, left my father when I was six, and my dad raised me from that point on. And so, she's instilled this praise thing in me where if I did something great, she'd be like, good girl. So I think for me internally, it became this people pleasing thing. I'll be honest with you, you know? And so this striving or that drive and the good grades and all of that stuff, it was putting me at a very young age when she was gone by the age of six, that was already there. Then I had the love of my grandmother and then the work ethic of my dad. I think, you know, I pretty much, honestly, it within my head was kind of self-raising at that point because I was like, okay, I know what gets me praise. I know what gets me the thumbs up, gold stars, and just kept pushing for that. And, you know, I think my drive was to see what else was out there, honestly, you know? Um, so yes, some of that came from them. Absolutely. You know, I wouldn't be, you know, who I am today without their influence. And I mean, I can imagine you know, your mom leaving at a young age, that's, that's very traumatic. Is what's your relate? Have you always continued to have a good relationship with her? Like, I'm just curious how that manifested later on. Yeah, absolutely. We're, she still lives, you know, we live in the same city now, but, and she lived when she left my dad, uh, we were still living in the same city. Um, she just had to get away from him. Um, and I'll say this, you know, he was a horrible husband, but an amazing dad. And so it was crazy. This, this contrast of, you know, when she was leaving, she's like, well, do you want to come with me? And I'm like, no, well, this is my home and I have my room. And at six, I was like, no, and heartbreaking. I remember this day, you know, but I also knew, well, this is stability, you know, and I think so. I think in my spirit, I have an old spirit. I think something in me always just kind of just knew what to decide kind of a thing. Um, I was just thinking that I was just thinking this is an old soul. Like this is somebody who, how a six-year-old has the wherewithal to know that in your bones is quite precocious, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we, we maintained a, a good relationship. I saw her and visited with her, um, but it was tough, you know, and I think that also made my skin even thicker um, because, you know, I didn't have her constant influence after that and missed her terribly, you know, being in the house with us. But I knew even at that age, it was better that she was away because seeing all of the, all of the stuff that was going on just wasn't healthy. Um, and so to this day, yeah, we're super tight. You know, we had to, of course, work through some things. I had some deep rooted resentments, you know, in my twenties and things like that. And we've had very tough conversations. Same with my father. I've sat down with them one-on-one and had very intense in-depth conversations about, excuse me, how those experiences did shape me, how they affected me. Um, but they definitely made me stronger. You know, I, I don't know that I would be the same type of person, you know, that I am today. I, I, I pride myself on being very kind and thoughtful and considerate of others. Um, and, and I don't know that I might be a lot more selfish, you know what I mean, had my experience been any different than it was. So you ended up in Atlanta for college and then you stayed and you and you got into the music business and you were in the music business for eight years. And I love the story of kind of 
how you pivoted at that point. Um, because it's not like, at least what I gleaned from the book is it's not like, you know, TV was the plan in any shape or form. It kind of, yeah. So talk about like how, what was the moment where you thought I've been doing this long enough Mm -hmm. and what about television? Because again, it's, it's interesting to hear. And I think for like the younger people that listen to the podcast, you know, how you get from A to B and Mm -hmm. there's no linear path. It's, Every story is different. So I love, especially sort of like for the more seasoned people in the business, I think mm-hmm. it's instructive to hear, you know, kind of, cause I think people are also maybe scared. Like, uh, you know, I'm, how do I do this? How do I even kind of choose a new path? Yeah. I think for me, you know, we were, I had been at Patchwork and working at LaFace Records and Hickle Music Publishing, D-Lo Studios. I was part-timing at all these different jobs in Atlanta after, during college and after college. And so later in my twenties, I remember it was one night I was sitting in my office at Patchwork and Curtis Daniel runs it and Bob Whitfield of the Falcons, he, you know, was the owner of it at the time. And so I'm sitting in the office, it's late night. My shift was 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. for like years. That was my shift. So I slept in and worked nights. And so I'm sitting in the office doing payroll and I had a staff of like maybe 13, 14 people under me at that time. And, you know, doing payroll for Curtis and just organizing, doing what I do. And an episode of Oprah comes on. I think it was a um, some kind of thing about her uh, when she was a, a newscaster um, and she was starting out in her career. So they were doing like a little, you know, story on her. And so I'm watching and I'm watching. And so, and basically they run down her, her experience and what she had been doing, working at this news station. And she said something um, when they were interviewing her and she said, you know, there's something about, you know, going to a job every day that you don't love anymore. Like it, when you first get there, it's amazing, all these things. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, because I don't remember exactly what she said. Uh, but she said something to the effect of, there's nothing like going to a job every day that you no longer are in love with. A small piece of you dies. And girl, when I tell you, I started bawling at my desk and was like, oh my God, because I had done this. You know, I knew it like the back of my hand. It was, you know, I could sleepwalk and do this job, you know. But did and- you know you were unhappy? Or was that the moment where you realized? I didn't know that I was unhappy. And here's the thing. I think too, I I didn't, I wasn't willing to face that I was unhappy because I was afraid to face that I was unhappy. And, and so I was like, okay, what does that mean? You know, what do I do? And yes, I had a degree in TV, TV and radio and film at this point, but I'd never used it at all. Um, I had always in my mind was like, oh, I'll be an A&R in the music business, or I'll be a radio personality. That was one of my other goals. And so that, but at this point, when I'm running the studio or co-running the studio and I'm like, wait a minute, this is, this is not it anymore. What do I do? I broke down and cried and eight years I had been there. And so I think at that point it was seven years. And by the eighth year is when I ended up transitioning out of there. And eight is so important. And it's been such a repetitive number in my experience. Like I, you know, was there for eight years. Um, then I was unemployed after that for eight months, like no money. Like I had a small severance, almost lost my, I had two homes at the time, a town home and a house I owned in Ackworth, Georgia. I almost lost both of my homes, um, had no income whatsoever, a little bit of unemployment. I should say that. Um, so that was an eight month stint. And then I worked for Tyler Perry for a little over eight months, almost a year. And then I was unemployed again for eight months. And then I moved to LA in 2006. So, and in 2008, you know, I kind of was when everything began to really flourish for me, you know, so eight has been 
this repetitive thing, which is why I call, you know, my publishing company chapter eight publishing, because eight is kind of my, it's infinity standing up. It's, you know, it's all these different things. So, so yeah, that's, that's, I mean, Loaded, listen, sorry. <laughs> no, I get it to have the perseverance, um, to weather those storms. Eight months is not eight weeks. Eight months is a long time, especially in unemployment time when you're freaking out, how did you get through it? And what's your advice to other people who are in those, you know, because basically you decided I'm going to take the leap. And I think a lot of people think like, yeah, well, when I decide, when I put my head to it, it will happen because I've determined to happen, but it doesn't always work out like that. Right. So how do you weather that storm? What, what do you tell people? How do you get through that? I think you just continue to bet on yourself. I, I feel like and I'm a very, you know, spiritual person, not so much religious, but more spiritual. I feel like if God leads you to it, he'll guide you through it. And so me making that decision is not something that I wanted to do. I was kind of pushed out of the company. I manifested them pushing me out when I had that revelation. It took maybe not quite a year, but then at that, there was came a point at that eighth year where they were like, okay, this thing is happening. You're going to have to either take a huge pay cut or you're going to have to uh, and stay, or you're going to have to leave. And so I manifested this new transition, which I, I often do. I am a magical manifester, apparently. And so I, you know, left that situation. But I think during that eight months, how I survived was just, I cried a lot. I prayed a lot. I was honest with myself. I sat in my feelings, um, but I trusted. I just had to trust that trouble doesn't last always, you know, as an old scripture from the Bible. And so I felt like, okay, if I was led to this, I'll get through it. It can't be this bad all the time. Like, and so I just began to just, you know, continued staying faithful as much as I could, read my Bible. I fasted and prayed and did all these, you know, things. But more than anything, I just stayed positive and trusted that, you know, this wasn't the end. And at the end of the day, I always had home to go to. So I was like, okay, well, if I fail and fall on my face. I do have loving parents and I can go back home, you know, whatever that looked like, you know what I mean? Um, and so that also kept me driving too, because I was like, okay, I, I don't want to go back home. I gotta, <laughs> right. I gotta make it happen. <laughs> whatever I can do to not go back home. So, yeah. so you land in LA, which was a, you know, probably what needed to happen. So mm -hmm. you, you end up starting in casting for America's Next Top Model. So talk about casting and then kind of when you knew that you needed to get out of casting. <laughs> Yeah, um, Michelle Mock Falcone, um, she uh, was a casting director for that show and had been for all the seasons. And so I came onto that show, I think it was season six. Um, but before, prior to that, I had been PAing on her different sets, like in Florida, they would do their casting tour. So I would just drive in my little Honda Civic, me and my girlfriend, and we would like hustle and drive down, make a hundred bucks a day, PA for the day for 12 hours, then drive back to Atlanta, did that three times. And then oh, after Oh, several months, almost a year of that, she finally called and offered me a job in LA. And so I came to LA, worked on Top Model. I was there for eight seasons, four years. Um, and it was great because initially I was traveling a lot and recruiting these, you know, beautiful girls off the street in the malls and all that cool stuff. It was a new experience for me, you know, and here I am. Most of the people on my staff were younger, you know, kind of younger. Um, well, maybe we're on around the same age. This is late 20s around here, um, 30s, um, early 30s. And so we're traveling nonstop, which was great. And, um, you know, so then after I did that for maybe two years or so, I got tired of that piece and was like, well, how about I stay on in casting, but I start doing some of the editing. So I began editing a lot of the footage that Tyra would pick the cast from. And so I picked up another skill and stayed on staff and did that thing for a while. Um, 
And then after four years, eight seasons of it again, you know, eight seasons, I just, that just dawned on me. Uh, um, again, it was like, you know, this is great, but I do, you know, I had dabbled in doing some, some talent wrangling on a couple seasons of, you know, Pussycat Dolls. I did Top Model when they were actually shooting the show. And so I was like, you know, I think I want to go into this producing thing. I didn't know what it was. I had no idea what it really looked like, but I saw these cool people with these IFBs in their ears and walkie talkies. And they were like standing by and crafting story. And I'm like, what is that? What are these people doing? And I think it was on a Pussycat doll show when we were um, behind the scenes, I was a wrangler and I was watching the producers. And I'm like, I want to do that. I just want to do, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what they make. I don't care. That looks like it's interesting to me. And because casting is so much about personality and finding, you know, the grit in people and the fight in people. And I already had this, you know, skill, which I had no idea at the time that would help me so much in producing. And so, um, yeah, I, you know, took a leap of faith and there was a moment in that too, that, it was time for me to sign back up for that show. And I had to decide whether I was going to not take the job or not take the job and not taking the job meant I had no income again, um, no money again. And this was a guaranteed gig for four months, which, you know, brought in decent money at the time. And I remember driving, I had to make the decision on this morning. And I remember calling my godbrother. And I was bawling and I'm like, I don't know what to do. I really want to produce. I don't have an opportunity, but if I do this, I'm taking myself off the market for another five months, which means if anything comes available, I can't do it. And he's like, well, what do you, he's like, what are you afraid of? And I was like, of failing. And he was like, so you know what you have to do, right? And I was like, I have to do it. I have to do it scared. And that's kind of when that theme kind of began, began to awaken in my spirit, I think. And I didn't take the job, but I was unemployed for eight months before I got an actual producing gig. So here in LA, which is harder than Atlanta. Unemployment yeah. in LA and unemployment <laughs> in Atlanta, two different worlds, okay? Yeah, two different, two different <laughs> worlds. So, but also um, you told a really unfortunately common but disturbing story in your book about when you decided that you wanted to make the leap from casting to producing, you went to somebody who you had considered a mentor and you would have thought that, they would say, yes, Erica, do it. That's awesome. You should be growing. Instead, they were like, no, stick to casting. So talk yeah. about that and, and kind of what that did to your spirit. I won't I won't name names um, because you can, though. No. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was, you know, going to that person, it was it was deflating because I think that. For me to even say it out of my mouth, it's like, can I do that? I don't even know what it entails. I don't know what it looks like, smells like, tastes like. I have no idea, but I think I want to do it. And to speak to someone who, you know, I definitely respected, you know, um, and looked up to for them to not be like, go, girl, you can do whatever you want. You've got it. And I do believe that they thought that about me. But I think it was more so they were speaking from a place of their own experience, their own fears and kind of projecting those into my experience. Like, you don't want to try that. It's a lot of work. The hours are long. It's, you know, it's grueling. Casting is way easier. You know, you may want to stick with that, you know? And so, and, and I think too, everyone has their path. And so we have to be very, you know, conscious of when we're going to someone for guidance or advice, you know, their path is not our path. And that person was very much entrenched in what they were doing and very happy and thriving in that. And that was their purpose, but that wasn't my purpose. And it was my purpose to be, 
you know, in that world, you know, in around them in that capacity for a season. And then my season expired and I had to take a leap of faith and bet on me. And I'll tell you those eight months, you know, after I made that decision was like, oh, it could be two weeks, you know, it could be two months. It could be eight weeks, whatever. It was eight grueling months. And it was so humbling, you know, because again, broken LA, broken Atlanta, two different things. And, you know, you could be homeless in broken LA. Atlanta, you can kind of get by and, you know, because the rent is so much cheaper. And so um, it was very much a rough time um, for me, but I think what kept me in that period as well as in the previous periods was my faith. It was knowing that you know, there had to be something better on the other side of my fear. And my, my prayer to God was like, how do you allow me to come to this mountain? And I say, okay, I'm going to climb this mountain of fear and I'm going to conquer it. And then I climb it and I say, no, I'm not going to take this gig. And then I'm unemployed for all these months. Like in the book I talk about, I had this one particular day where I was, I had a fight with God. I got on my knees and I was bawling and crying and was like, what do you want from me? Like what I have done everything. I'm so obedient and I'm doing all these things. And I bawled and cried and, you know, God is amazing in this way where you can have a temper tantrum. And then when you're in the silence, the clarity comes and it's like, and the, and what I heard in my spirit was none of that validates you. I validate you. You don't need this job. Have you been homeless? Have you been hungry? And my answer to all those was like, no, no, no. And it was like, okay, just trust. And literally within a matter of a week and a half, I got a new job. I'd applied for a job for Extreme Makeover Home Edition for an AP position. I didn't get it. So I was, you know, like, okay, here we go again, you know, still in this eight month period. And then a week later, they called me back and was like, actually, you applied for the AP spot. We're going to give you a field producer spot. So me taking that leap of faith, I got, I got, I skipped segments. I skipped <laughs> yeah. AP. And Damn. I got my. You now missed gotta, all those PA and AP. I mean, that it was worth it. Granted, yeah, but I had some PAing and casting, so I'd done that. Okay, piece, got it. So you were AP was the next level. Yeah, and I skipped that spot and to become an, a full fledged field producer. But here's the thing: I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea what that girl. It was the hardest job of my life, but I learned so much so fast. So feel the fear and do it anyway. I mean, that's your, that's your whole, that's your whole book. So let me, what year was that? Do you remember the year? Lord, I want to say that must've been 2000. I got here in 06. So that what took me to 10. That must've been 2012, 13. It was season eight of extreme makeover home edition (laughs) season eight. Oh my Uh, God. This is getting creepy. I know, I know, but it was, yeah, it was season eight. Um, I think it was eight and nine that I was there for a stream makeover home edition. So I want to say 2000, maybe 11. Um, so, so real talk and, and, you know, feel free to say, no, I, I really am curious what you're, what you think. I mean, did you, do you think that your race and your gender, both or neither had anything to do with the fact that you were not getting gigs? You know, back then, I don't think that I was aware, to be honest with you, because it was such a new pond that I was jumping into. So I can't speak intelligently to that, to be honest with you at that at that point. Looking back on it, um, there definitely, there was not representation. You know, once I did get on the show, it was myself, another young lady, Gina, who was the assistant to the EP, and then demo and I think a coordinator there were like maybe four or five black people 
on a, on a crew of like a hundred people. And I was the field producer and my, uh, and my AP D Demetrius, he was the AP and Gina was, a, he had like, but there was no executives that were black for sure. And that, and we had two teams. So it was like a team of like 80 or a hundred on each side. And on my team, that was it. Um, so there definitely wasn't um, heavy representation back then. Uh, but in speaking to if that was a reason, I don't know if it was that. I think honestly, back then, I think I had been in casting for so long. I, I wasn't networking in the areas of producers. And so I wasn't meeting those people. I was in my niche and people in casting. I was getting calls for casting jobs. Right. Left and right. Right. You're like, like let me out. This. Let me out. Yeah. Right. And it I was, think it's, it's hard. I think people are scared to take chances on people. You know, I mean, you, you now that I mean, I'm curious now that you're a showrunner, if somebody came to you from casting and wanted to produce, you know, <laughs> would you have a special affinity because you've been through it or would you be like, no, they're just those skills aren't going to translate. Like, it's interesting no. when you get in the decision making chair, like how you look at it now. I'm curious. No, absolutely. I actually have someone on my staff right now who came from casting. She gave me my first PA job in a casting as a casting PA in Atlanta. 15, 16 years ago. So she's on my staff now, yeah, on the show that I'm on. And she comes from casting and that was largely her world. But I, I I would not, I definitely would have an affinity for someone who comes from that because people in casting actually have a great understanding of story and what makes a person's story and personality pop. You know, and when I was doing that, I was doing these, hosting my own, you know, casting calls, doing interviews for maybe like 80 girls hour, hour and a half, each girl, then I would have to go back to my room on my little Mac and an iMovie cut down an hour and a half interview down to a minute and a half of their best stuff. Right. You're so basically crafting a story. Right. And I didn't know that that's, how, that's what I was doing. I had no idea until I got producing and I'm like, oh man, I actually know what this is. And so for me at this point, I love people from casting for that reason. They really do. And they know when someone they're like, ah, she's, she's great, but she's actually shy or she's going to be our villain or whatever it might be for the show. What, you know, what the call, what the, um, what the, what am I trying to say? What the, what the story arc narrative is calling for in that show. But I, I, I love people from casting. I, they, they, yes, we are family. <laughs> so, okay. So you have your first gig as a field producer. You have no idea what you're doing. So how do you figure it out? Scared, scared, literally every day. And me, it's, Gina and I are now friends to this day. Like we are good girlfriends. And she, she actually was the one that fought for me. And you never know like what angels God puts on your path. You really don't. Cause I had gone in for that interview. Um, I think I had two or three interviews for the extreme makeover for the AP spot. Didn't get it. And so she was the one that was fighting the EP, her boss on, we need some color on this team. Like you have no black people on this team. And so, you know, I guess, you know, of course I got the job, but she was an angel in, in that regard. You know what I mean? And, and fighting for me, but how I got through is that I literally, you know, stayed up late nights. I was making sure I was on point. You know, as a black woman, I feel like we have to be 1000% better than the average, than the average. I don't have, good. Isn't that what yeah, I don't have the luxury of showing up and knowing a piece of what's going on or not knowing my job. And so even though I was learning what my job was, I was asking questions. Um, I was constantly, you know, 
just dialed in as much as I could be, you know, um, really reading all of the paperwork, doing a lot of writing, you know, of the beat sheets and things like that, trying to create, pitching stuff to my, you know, um, senior, Steve, Steve Berkowitz was my senior producer or supervising producer at that time. And so I was really always trying to be in it to understand it. And, and I wasn't afraid to say that I didn't know something, you know what I mean? I think sometimes we get so in our pride and we're like, well, I know, and, and I don't need you to tell me what to do. And I was very, you know, when I don't know something, I'm like, I'm sorry, forgive my ignorance. I don't know. Can you explain that to me? What does that word mean? What is, break that down for me? Cause I want to be great, but I have, I need help. You know what I mean? I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that that's such a great example. And your whole book is such a great example of how vulnerability breeds respect, because I think you're right. I think especially as women, we don't want to, you know, because it's harder to kind of crawl our way up. I mean, men just fake it. I mean, they, you know, it's like not asking for directions, you know? And so, but they just they sometimes do it. Exactly. Crazy. Exactly. For us, it's <laughs> like, we can, we don't have that luxury. So we have to be vulnerable um, usually to, to work our way to, you know, say, I don't, I don't know, or to be, but I think that it's, um, I think you don't always get rewarded for it. So I think the fact that you are not afraid, I just, I'm impressed by sort of like, you're a boss queen and you're also vulnerable because I think that's a very rare combo. And I think it's a great example to other women, especially out there that you can be both. It's okay. To mm-hmm. be vulnerable, it doesn't mean you're not strong and you're not in charge and you don't know what, you know how to do things. It just means that you're human. Yeah, I think our vulnerability is, like you just said, it, it makes us human. But that's where the beauty of of us as women shines through. You know, the world wouldn't be as fantastic as it is without our grace and our beauty and just our essence. You know, so you know. And, and it's so funny because people say boss and I kind of lean away from the boss word. I feel like I'm more of, I try to be more of a leader because I don't have the diva mentality. I don't think I'm better than anybody else. I just think that my path is my path. Um, and I do believe in each one, teach one. And so, you know, I may have a quote unquote boss position um, in some people's eyes, but I take it very, you know, seriously in that knowing I'm, I'm, I want to be a leader. I want to help. I want to pay it forward. I want to open the door, hold the door open, you know, blaze the trail, if you will, you know, to let others know that it's okay. Like we're in this thing together. I love that. You told a story. So I follow you on social media and you told a story the other day, an Oprah story that Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God. And then I thought, did I forget? This is not in her book, right? You Did you talk about that story in your book? I didn't talk about that. Okay, so in a sequel. I'll that's probably the give sequel. <laughs> okay, well, tell, can you tell it to the audience though? Because it's such yeah. a great story and there's like great lessons baked in there. Yeah, no, I had gotten, I, so I'd been field producing for a while um, and I had interviewed for to work at Harpo. You know, they were leaving, Oprah was going off the air and they were transitioning and getting on and doing all these new things in Chicago. And so I'd applied had several interviews, um, didn't get it for a while. And then finally they called and was like, we have a position available in um, Chicago, but you would have to relocate. Now, I'm not making fantastic money at this point. And so I'm like, well, I can't do rent in both places. So, you know, I had to, uh, I accepted the job, of course, because who says no to Oprah? And so I lock up my apartment. I, you know, pack up a few suitcases and I go to Chicago and I have to get a roommate. I haven't had a roommate in like 15 years at this point. So I'm grown. I'm really grown at this point. I'm like, roommate, what are we doing? 
point. Um, and so, but I was able to find this really sweet girl. We, she lived in a high rise about a mile from Harpo Studios. Um, and so I get there and, you know, meet the staff and all of that stuff. Um, you know, overall, I'll say this, the experience because my girlfriend, she responded to my post and she's like, oh my gosh, she's like, I'm crying because I know how hard that time was for you and you were so miserable in so many ways. But the fact that you're writing this post in this way and it's so positive, you know, I think it's so great, you know? And so it was tough because it was winter. I am a California girl through and through. So I was in Chicago in the dead of winter from like October, September, October until the break of summer, which was like June. And so it was excruciatingly cold. <laughs> I was and, there. I, I lived there in the winter too for grad school. I, I, I always say I blew to class. Like yes. it's so windy. I mean, that's that's no exaggeration, the windy city. It's cold to it's your so soul. Cold to your soul. <laughs> to your soul. Like and to the point where I was walking over overpasses thinking I would get blown over because I'm only, you know, a buck ten. You know, so I'm like, is this wind gonna carry? Am I gonna die on the freeway? Like getting blown off the bridge. Anyway. So overall, the experience was tough, but that first week there, you know, I was meeting the new staff and there was this, you know, they hired a handful of black women actually to kind of, you know, head up this new division. And so um, we all meet each other. We're, we're in these, you know, meetings and figuring out, I was working on the Yama Fix My Life, so we're figuring out the stories and all this stuff. Now, this was a godsend too, because Yama had always been my favorite author since I was in college. I had read pretty much all of her books. And were there eight of them? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, (laughs) probably, probably. Probably. Yeah. And so, so to be, so that was the other thing was like to get on this show. I was like, this is amazing. Like, yes, it's a, it was a lateral move. I did not get a promotion. I did not get a raise. I took a small pay cut, honestly, to do this. And this is a lesson to that. It's not always about the money. Sometimes it's about the opportunity and, you know, it's think long game, not short-term loss thing long-term gain. And so for me, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to Chicago. I'm going to make profit, no money because I had to pay rent in LA and pay rent in Chicago and live and eat and do all that stuff. And so I've made, I made nothing extra whatsoever, but we're sitting in this, you know, in these meetings this week and someone comes in and is like, oh, we're going to have this meet and greet uh, this on Friday night um, at the president's house. I think it was Sherry Salata and we're going to be at her house and Oprah's going to come. And I'm like, okay, And so we go and I'm like, wait, do I get to come? And they're like, yeah, you actually can come. I'm like, okay, great. Now I had been to the Oprah show before a couple of times. So I had met her in passing, waved, you know, that kind of thing. This is going to be a sit down fireside chat, you know, evening with, you know, with her. And so we go to Sherry's house and beautiful penthouse in Chicago. I'm like, this is how I want to live. This is amazing. You know, she had owned the whole floor or something crazy. It was gorgeous. And um, so we're there and, you know, at some point in the evening, maybe an hour or so into it, Oprah floats in, you know, looking just amazing and just super relatable, super, you know, humble, relatable, um, welcoming, warm, you know, and so we're all kind of mingling and, you know, we're, we're the new girls. So we're kind of in a little corner, like, okay, we don't want to like be all extra and look like groupies, but that's Oprah. That's kind of amazing, you know? And so there comes a point in the evening, you know, after we're all kind of, you know, sipping, you know, the people they had, like it was Christmas, not Christmas, it was fall. So we had like, you know, hot cocoa and cider and like all these really nauseous, you know, good food. 
there were servers like dressed to the nines serving us on silver platters. It was so fancy schmancy. It was great. And so um, we all sit down at one point and it was time for the fireside chat. And so, you know, we sit in this large circle pretty much around the room. There's maybe in this, in this gathering, there's maybe 30 people, maybe. And so um, we're sitting in this circle and she, you know, leads it off, you know, and just begins talking about, you know, you know, uh, well, someone introduces her, Terry introduces her, and then she kicks it off and kind of talks about, you know, thanking us for being there. This new, you know, launching of own network is going to be, you know, all these amazing things, what she wants to do, what she sees in the future, all these things. And, you know, in that moment, you know, she said something to the effect of, you know, um, what did she say? Uh, this, you, you were born for this moment. You belong here. So I don't know where you all come from. And I'm not sure where everyone is going, but for this moment in time, this is exactly where you belong. Now, up until this point, you know, I'm questioning, should I have done this? I'm not making no money. This, and I've only been here for a week at this point, but I'm like regretting it already. Like, this is not the move. It's cold. It's not my life, you know? And when she said that, it made me lock in. I clocked in, was like, okay, I'm here. I've made this choice and I'm going to live through it. And We'll see what's on the other side. And so I did it scared, you know, again, in that situation. And, you know, when they were launching the reality side, so I brought in um, an expertise because I had learned so much on Extreme Makeover and, and a couple other shows I had done. I, I was able to bring that to them and, you know, kind of impart knowledge on how to shoot in the field because that wasn't what they were accustomed to. They did all stage shows. So um, it was... It was a very trying experience for me um, for many reasons that I won't get into, but overall, I know that it did help shape me and I had to do it and I'm glad that I did and I have no regrets about it. Yeah. I mean, just for the mere fact that you got to work with Oprah and Ayanla, I mean, yeah. two icon, obviously Oprah's in her own league, but yeah. people who regularly listen to this podcast, now I'm completely obsessed with Oprah and yeah. I was like the number one fan of the own show where they follow the 25th season. Yes. Mm -hmm. I I mean, that's still my favorite reality show to date. So I'm extremely jealous that you got that. But yeah, I mean, look, so many of those things are hard, but you look back and think like, where would my career be? Who would I be as a person if I hadn't done it? So yeah. fast forward to you becoming a showrunner, which you've been now for several years. Um, tell us what you've been up to and what you're working on. Um, I am up to right now working on a show called Family or Fiance, and um, it's our third season uh, for own. Um, it's called they call it two way, but it's really three in our in our brains. Um, we've gotten a pickup for twenty episodes, which is pretty incredible. Um, and myself, uh, Jonathan Singer and Ninja, uh, we're kind of a trifecta of amazingness, and so you know we're at the helm of this you know really awesome show. Um, I think we all love it because we really are giving back in a way that we're helping people. People come through our doors, you know, for three days with their families trying to figure out, you know, what the issues are with this couple that that's getting married. And we really do help them. You know, it's, it's, it, we cry on set. We're cheering in the, you know, in the control room and like blasting music. Cause we're like, this was the best episode ever. Like we just have such an amazing time. It really is lightning in a bottle being, you know, on this ride with these guys, you know, and, you know, it's, it's, I commend on for 
and Buna Murray for, you know, having a show like this on their roster where, you know, it is something that, of course, there's moments where there's dr drama that pops off and things like that. But overall, you know, it's a very altruistic approach to a show like this. Um, and it's not exploitative. You know, it really does aim to aid these people who are longing for closer relationships with their family members, with their fiance or what have you, the, all these interpersonal com, um, um, relationships have such an impact on the marriage. And it's just a genius idea, you know, it really is. I'm sure it's not lost on you that that's a thread in your career though. Extreme Home Makeover, Yanla Fix My Life, Family of Fiance. I mean, all of those I think subscribe to exactly what you're saying. They are actually shows that make a difference. And yeah. I think if you can do what you do, make money at it, and also feel like you're, like you said, something's altruistic about it, yeah. that's the home run. Yeah, and I think too, that's probably why on, I, I'm, I'm not the best fit for certain shows. You know, I've, you know, and, and and I've been let go from shows before, you know, and it's just, I'm not always the best fit because that's not always what is the goal, the aim, you know what so I mean? So is that like when people want you to create fake drama and do that kind of yeah, trash I, stuff? I bump on that. <laughs> yeah, I bump sorry. on that. It, it, it doesn't resonate in my spirit and I have to sleep well at night. And some people can do that and do it great. But for me and, and my house, which is my temple, my body, I have to really feel good about the things that I do, you know, and the things that I commit myself to. And if it doesn't resonate, then I'm just not going to do it. it I, I can't afford it. My spirit can't afford it. I love that. I, I really do. And look, you're at a place in your career where knock on wood, you're not going to have to suffer eight months of unemployment for saying no to those <laughs> things, you know? So that comes also oh. with, with, with having the standing, right. To say like, I, I know now that I am, employable mm -hmm. enough to be able to say say yes to the jobs I want and no, no to the ones I don't. And even when I wasn't, oh, I'll say this, if there was something, I would say that's not the best fit for me. You know, even if I was looking for it, I'd be like, you know, that's, so-and-so wants to meet you for this. I'm like, that's not my, that's not my judge. I, that, I'm not going to be able to deliver to them what they want. And I want to be set up for success and I want them to have a successful show. I'm not the person for that. That's just not my thing. You know what I mean? And I, and, and you have to know what's for you you know, and, and be yeah. okay to say no to that if it's not. I love Shark Tank. Obsessed, yeah. right? So that's, I'm yeah. just thinking about when the sharks are like, it's a great business, but I can't add value. So that like, I, there's better sharks up here who can, you know, Absolutely. that's so mature, even though, you know, you could probably succeed at it. You mm -hmm. know, there's people that are better. Yeah. So lastly, I know you're extremely goal oriented and, um, and thinking ahead. And we've had some conversations about that. What are you thinking for your career? Where do you want it to go? Do you have concrete plans or what's your five-year plan? Oh, Lord. It's so funny because we have um, we have a segment on our show that we people do the five-year plan from time to time. And, you know, I don't ever do five-year plans. I think that oh, I haven't planned any of this. I haven't planned any. It's going to make me cry. It's to answer your question, I think for me, what's next is more of the same, more of the same, I, you know, by that, I mean, I really want to continue to produce and create, you know, great content, you know, open doors for others, um, really 
sow seeds, seeds of goodness and kindness, you know, wherever I go, sprinkle, you know, black girl magic glitter everywhere that I go. <laughs> um, you know, but as far as career goes, I'm open, you know, I, I've, you know, always wanted to learn the business side as well. We, you and I talked about this in our last podcast as you know, you, you know, that corporate side of, you know, maybe doing more of that just to kind of blaze more trails, open more doors potentially, you know, um, but I, I so love what I do. I, I love show running. I love being in the field. I love, you know, I posted a picture yesterday um, that someone captured of me sitting in the middle of a scene last week and I'm sitting on the ground Indian style with my Bose headphones on listening to my IFB in the midst of just this mother and daughter having a conversation. I'm sitting there and I'm bawling as I, as they're talking because I'm helping, like, I know what she wants to say to her mom and I know what her mom, what she needs from her mom. So I'm helping them bridge this gap, but I'm also getting healing in the process. You know what I mean? Like it's such a cathartic and beautiful experience for me in some of these moments. And so I love that. I love that, you know, these lightning in a bottle moments happen, you know, in my world. And so I want to continue to do that in some capacity. And you know, also want to learn the other side. I want to, you know, get on the other side of the veil and really see what that's like and maybe do some development and, you know, put out content that really is told through our lens, you know, not through the rose colored lenses of others, if that oh, makes sense. I, I does. I, I love that. So by the time we drop this uh, next week, the book will be out. So tell everyone again, the name of the book. So exciting. Your birthday. Um, <laughs> tell everyone where, you know, the name of the book, where they can read it. Um, and by the way, I will say, not only is it good, it's a very fast read, which is important for me and most people <laughs> who are busy. So you will zip right through it. And it's, you know, just great little lessons and gems along the way. So tell everyone where they can find it and find you. Okay. So the book is called Doing It Scared. The subtitle is an inspirational guidebook to facing and conquering fear. Um, it can be found on March 22nd, starting March 22nd on amazon.com. Uh, Erica Bryan, it's E-R-I-K-A. People often misspell that. So you won't find it if you're looking under that name. Um, you can also buy um, autograph copies on my website, Erica, E-R-I-K-A hyphen Bryant.com. Um, and I'll sign those and ship those out personally. But if you want to just order from Amazon, they'll ship them to you immediately. Um, and yeah, that's it. So you like the book? Did you? Love I love it? the book. Are you going to do an audio book, by the way? I want to. How do you have to tell me how to do this? Because I really want to do one. Okay. Well, we'll talk off mic. Yes, please. <laughs> I'm like, I see your mic there. I'm like, I need to learn. Someone told me I've done a lot of, not a lot, but I've done several podcasts. And Ninja was like, you need to do an audiobook. He's like, you have such a great voice. And he's like, you need to, he's like, the way that you tell your stories is different. He's like, just do an audiobook and you'll probably, you know, make a lot of headway because it's your voice. So, yeah, I'm open. I want to do it. Good. Okay. Exciting. Thank you. Oh, and I'm self-publishing. So please support. We, yes, we let's, support. let's support self-publishers and, uh, and Erica's journey because you were very brave to share everything and very inspirational. I will say you're a great role model and awesome person. So thank you for doing thank this again. Thank you so much. Oh, I love you. You're the best. <laughs>